Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is writer and journalist John Lanchester. John is perhaps best known for the novels The Debt to Pleasure and most recently Capital, which Claire Tomlin called an intelligent and entertaining account of grubby, uncertain, fragmented London society. And for his non-fiction book on the financial crash, Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay. Will Self called this the route map to the crazed world of contemporary finance we've all been waiting for. And if Whoops was the route map, John's latest publication is the phrase book. How to Speak Money shows you it's possible to learn to speak the language of money. Possible, desirable, and perhaps even necessary if we're to avoid feelings of complete helplessness and bafflement when confronted with the big financial forces that shape our lives. John's own interest in this subject grew out of his research for the novel Capital, his search for what lay behind the ostensible story. He writes in How to Speak Money, the answer I often found was that the story behind the story turned out to concern money. And as he painstakingly educated himself in this new field, his sense of its importance only grew. He went from having a hazy, fuzzy grasp of financial language to mastering it, to the extent he feared that he might be about to cross over, to become one of them. But first things first. I began by remarking that John's own father had been a banker. He was. He worked for what was then the well-run but sleepy colonial institution, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, which is always referred to in Hong Kong as the bank, and um, spent his whole working life in Asia, in Calcutta, in Borneo, in Japan, in Hong Kong, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, all over the place, but mainly Hong Kong, and that's where I grew up. And of course, the sleepy colonial institution is now the second biggest bank in the world. It's global mega giant HSBC. And he was a banker of the old school who gave funds for people to start businesses and to make things. Yes, I mean, banking is a completely different thing. I often wonder, he died in 1983, died much too young. Um, but I often wonder what he would have made of the modern world of finance and banking. But in his days, banking was that very simple thing about um, if you have money, you deposit it in the bank. And if you need money for a business or a mortgage or something, you go to the bank and ask to borrow it. And they look at you and your circumstances and see if you can afford to pay it back. And if you can afford to pay it back, they lend it to you. And the thing about that is, you know, you pay the depositors 3% and you charge the borrowers 6% and you've invented a machine for making money forever. So the world of banking was not an entirely alien one to you as you were growing up, albeit it was a, it was a, different, a different sort of banking, but you, you had some kind of sense of what it was all about and the part it played in life. I did, broadly speaking, and I think also, um, I think the, the, the main, almost the main thing I had from having my dad work for the bank was the sense that I sort of had permission to understand it, you know, that it wasn't inherently incomprehensible. I think a lot of people don't have that permission. They feel sort of baffled and flummoxed and defeated in advance just by everything about money and economics. Oh, I'll never get my head around it. So sort of don't bother. I mean, don't start, you know. And although it was sort of later in life when I started taking an active interest in it as a subject, I think that that sense of if you put your mind to it, you can figure it out is comprehensible. It's also partly because my dad, you know, knew senior figures at the bank and his contemporaries. And so when, you know, the bank, as it were, bought another bank, 
while he was there, they bought a thing called BBME, the British Bank of the Middle East, which actually in retrospect is part of HSBC's journey to being this sort of massive global corporation. And that was, you know, as it were, someone he knew, talking to someone else he knew and deciding what the hell, let's buy the bank. So it just had that sense of it was humanly explicable. And I think that's that was important to me ending up writing about it. And the, the reason you ended up writing about it was because you saw it as a major part of the novel Capital. What you, when, you were, when you were thinking about the novel you wanted to write, money became an increasingly important part of the story. Yes, I, w- I wanted to write about London today and I wanted to write about the, thing, the themes that that sort of brought up. Because the novel, you know, in several ways, literally began with looking out the window. And as you can see, looking out the window here, I mean, you can, there, there is the city. And I sort of started to think about that it was actually very difficult to understand London and, and Britain and the modern world. But, you know, moving from, because it's all set in one street, I wanted to move from the particular and then expand it from there. That even at that level of, you know, who your labours are, what the things that happen in your life are, at that level of detail, even there, the the city is very important. So you can't really think about this street slash London more generally slash UK more generally without thinking about finance and economics and, and the world of money. So how did you begin to immerse yourself in that world? Um, I started written a couple of pieces. I started, um, I think the first one might have been about technology about Bill Gates, or about Gates, about Murdoch, about Walmart. And I started being interested in, at that point, I was interested in companies. I thought there was something interesting about companies being a bit like people, having these sort of stories. And, and, and then I was working on the novel and beginning to think, now I've got to do something about finance. And um, I started working on a piece about banks for the London Review of Books. And just as I was working on it, the Northern Rock collapsed. And so I ended up following that story pretty much in real time. And I'd started Capital thinking that there was a bust coming. It's implicit in the shape of the book, that it begins with a boom that's going to turn into a bust. So I sort of bet quite a lot of my working life on a bust. But obviously I didn't expect anything quite that global scale and magnitude, and and frankly quite so scary. Um, And so a number of things came together in terms of, you know, uh, in fact I thought it was going to be a bog-standard property crash. And the joke about that is that, you know, of all the asset categories in the world, I mean, I think it's difficult. I was, I'm not sure I've ever been quite so right and quite so wrong simultaneously because, boy, was I right about being a crash coming. But, boy, was I wrong about where I thought it was going to be because I thought it was like, you know, a property bubble based in London that was going to make this gigantic loud popping noise. And, you know, I've been listening quite hard for that gigantic loud popping noise in London property. It hasn't come come along yet. And so the, 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 that whole set of confluence of things of, you know, it was in the shape of the book. And then I was, so I was watching the thing that actually happened. And it just turned out to be much more interesting and much more alarming than I, I thought it would be. And how, how did you actually, you know, gain the knowledge that has gone into the, the new book? What was, your, what was your process of acquiring that? It was sort of slowish process of marination in, um, well, the news, the first thing. And, and it's very simply, whenever there's a term I didn't understand, I'd look it up. And that if you remember back to the credit crunch, there were a lot of those terms. You know, there was um, people talking about, you know, RMBS. And what the hell's that? You know, residential mortgage, mortgage-backed security, i.e. a pool of mortgage assets. Okay. CDOs. Again, what? 
collateralized debt obligation. And so what, what do, what does collateralized mean? So then find that out and then, then realize it's a form of security. Well, okay, well, so what are securities? And it, it was a bit by bit. And it's actually really, I hope, reflected in the book that, you know, that is how one, speaking for myself, but I, think, I hope it's a more general thing too, that's how you find out about this stuff. It's sort of term by term and it gradually builds up into a kind of mosaic, into a sort of set of, because the language really is a set of tools, you know, that you acquire, acquire bit by bit. And I still do it. If I come across a thing from reading the business pages or the FT or the news or whatever, and if there's a term I don't, I don't know what it is, I go and find out. And by the way, I mean, the, the, the usually comes up when something's blown up, you know, there's a scandal or a crisis or there's something in the news or, you know, someone's accidentally lost a billion dollars betting on something. There was that thing with the so-called London Whale, who's the trader at JP Morgan, who lost... Um, Bruno Ixell. Bruno Ixell, $6.3 billion, I think it was, um, described as a tempest in a teapot by his boss until it turned out to be $6.3 billion. And that was um, forward-settling ETF derivative contracts. And I remember when I heard that, what? You know... Uh, um, and, and the interesting thing, well, one of the interesting things about that was it happened in 2012, didn't it? So it happened four years on from the crash, the time when it came to light that excessive risks have been taken. And this is happening four years after that. Yeah, that, that's right. It, it, I mean, you know, the, you know, if you're interested in sort of scandals and crashes, this really, this stuff really is the gift that keeps giving because there is a new one every 10 minutes. And yeah, that was really quite late in the piece. And so I don't know what a... Actually, I have no idea what a forward-settling ETF derivative is. And then there was the one the other day, there's a guy um, at Barclays, a trader, fined 26 million quid. And that was for something like was settling the gold spot price. Said, what the hell's the gold spot price? Rigging it. And the thing that was interesting about that was that the day on which the guy did it was the day after Barclays had been fined 290 million quid for rigging Libor. Which is kind of amazing, you know that uh, they've just they've just written a cheque for quarter of a billion pounds and change, which you'd have thought was a fairly significant day in the history of the bank. Basically, the biggest slap on the wrist that an institution's ever had, financial institution in London. And the next day, the guy rigs a futures market in rigs a spot market in gold. Uh, that was sort of amazing detail about about the culture. And so there's always something new, you know, so, so there'll be, I bet there's something next week, there'll be something, some implosion or scandal or panic, and there'll be a word in it, and oh, I don't know what that is, and I'll go and look it up. And obviously, the complexity facilitates that kind of abuse, doesn't it? Even if it's not designed with that express purpose, it certainly makes it easier if things are several steps removed from, you know, what you were saying about your dad lending to someone at, at, at 6%. It certainly helps complexity definitely fuels the potential for abuse and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to give people the feeling that they understand the principles because the details are often complicated but the principles I don't think are I think the principles can be grasped by anyone and if we all had a grasp of the principles it would be harder for these things to be rigged and abused and cheated I think that the the fact that deregulation essentially led to the financial sector writing its own rules. And that led to abuses. Now, we're in a complicated position at the moment, a tricky position, because the financial sector would immediately vociferously complain that actually there are now billions of rules. They're very complicated. They're small. They're annoying. They're pointless. They create all sorts of unintended consequences. I fear that some of that may be true, 
And I fear another thing more, which is that the proliferation of these things, as I said somewhere else, it's like trying to tie down Gulliver. It's the Lilliputians tying him down with lots of little ropes. That, in effect, is what we try to do at the city. And the thing about it is that all, lots of little rules create immense complexity and potentials for further abuse and unintended consequences and ways of gaming the system. And it's very, very difficult. You, know, you have very, very smart, very highly motivated people who spend all day, every day, thinking of ways around complicated rules. And having more complicated rules is a, not the obvious way of fixing that. So what you've written is not really the Faber Dictionary of Economics. What, what would you say it is? I don't know how I'd characterise it. I'm, and in, in a way, I sometimes it's a bit like a novel, really, that if you could, um, if I could have done it simpler, I would have done it. So I think it's, it's uh, I'm trying to give it a kind of popular guide to economics for, and a kind of toolkit. And I wanted actually, I wanted to have a number of different uses. I wanted to be able to just look it up to, if you hear a word and not know what it is, in the news or whatever, just to look it up and say, okay, okay that's what, that's what the Bund is, German government debts used as a benchmark in Europe. So, and the old T-bills, same thing with American debt. You could look up specifically. I wanted it to be able to be read consecutively, so you can start at the beginning, read through to the end. It's sort of sufficiently understanding, hasn't sufficient energy for that. And I also wanted to write it to have it just sort of stay around, you know, that the things in it would still, still be true. So there's a kind of responsive to the news aspect to it. And I also hope that it just gives a view. I've spent about a decade now thinking about this stuff and have learned quite a lot and have views about the way things are. And I wanted it to sort of do all those multiple things at the same time. There's a book I really admire called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Pierce. It's sort of semi-satirical, but also very funny, very useful American book about just sort of terms in general use in politics and life. And, the, and I wouldn't say it's exactly a model, but it was certainly something I had in the back of my mind. And because you're dealing with... Uh a field where neologism is rife, you haven't been able to resist that yourself and you've come up with a new word, which I guess one day may be in the OED. I, I, I wonder about that. Um, it's reversifications. I just got very interested in the thing whereby words don't often don't mean what they say. They are. There's, there's a sort of dual thing. Quite often I notice that when people in public, politicians say things about economics, they're very often the opposite of the truth. You know, that things like we're cracking down hard on bankers' pay. Well, actually, what that means is that they're not well they're not cracking down on bankers pay nothing's happening about bankers pay we're in it together well actually we're not you know that is a very full complete and honest account of exactly what's not happened since 2010 we're not in it together at all our interests are diverging more rapidly and completely than before and and it's if that's a kind of basis for government that we're not in it together and so I, I sort of noticed that and then I started thinking about the fact that actually it was more general than that that you often get a thing not just people saying things that are opposite of the truth but words that didn't quite mean what it looked like they meant and indeed quite often would mean more or less the opposite I mean in terms of like you know bailout if you bail something out in real life it's like you slot you've got water coming into a boat or a building or and you're sloshing water out but a bailout in real life is pouring public money into something and instead of taking something dangerous out you're putting something vital in and often that you're not going to get back if it's a bank securitization it sounds like it's making something 
to cure. And in fact, it's not. It's to do with turning something into a thing that you can buy and sell and trade and use to gamble. And then the, the big one, um, and I think the one that's sort of most consequential in terms of this, how society's worked and one of the things that's happened is to do with debt. You know, I grew up, debt was a bad thing. Um, and there was, it, it spanned the classes, really. It was a middle class preoccupation. But it was very much a working class one too, that, you know, you should avoid debt. Debt was a negative and had a kind of vampiric effect. You know, it was sucking things out. And if you were in debt, you are in a predicament and you should do everything you could to get out of debt. That's not so, you know, I'm only 50. That's not unusual. It's a thing to have grown up with. But it's completely gone now. A whole culture runs on debt and a whole economy runs on debt and people are encouraged to take more of it on and people think of access to it as a sort of positive thing. And the reason, really, I think, is because the financial services industry turn it around. But the simplest con trick in the world, they change the name. They don't call it debt. They call it credit. And credit's a good thing. If you call it credit, people want more of it. It's good to have access to credit. It's good to use credit. It's good to have more proliferation of credit cards. And, you know, during the boom, and actually there's some signs, slight signs of it occasionally, since I think to do with houses now, house prices. But you know, I reckon I get three letters a week, unsolicited things coming through the mail. So do you want credit? Do you want to, you know, um, transfer your credit balance to a new card? Do you want to take out a new credit card? Do you want a line of credit? Do you want a loan? Completely out of the blue, so as if credit was raining down. All of that's actually debt. Do you, when I rang my own bank before, you know, that incredibly annoying automated thing that they make you go through before they torture you by pressing the buttons they'd say would you like a loan it's actually like force-fed you know force-fedding geese to create foie gras it's like jamming debt down everyone's throat and as i say come to realize that that's through if you're calling it debt that wouldn't be happening that's because you're calling it credit and I thought a lot about this thing about things actually being close to their opposites. And that's when I came back with the idea of reversification, that there's a sort of process often of, often fairly benign actually, of innovation and coming up with new things. And what happens is over time, things just sort of, words no longer mean, you know, hedge turns into hedge fund. And by the end of that process, there's actually no link between the two meanings of the words. They sort of turned into the Chinese wall, you know, it's not the whacking Great Wall in China, keeping out barbarians. It's this kind of completely fake thing inside an institution, which they often use to exploit money. So reversification is the term I came up to coin with this thing of, that, you know, common sense is no longer a guide to what these words mean. And we've had, what, three and a half decades now of a neoliberalist order. And I guess that seems like the only game in town, even after the credit crunch. I mean, were you surprised that the, the, the reaction, there wasn't, you know, there weren't more popular reactions or, or searching for alternatives post-crunch? I was very surprised. Um, I, I still think it's a sort of interesting failure, really, that that there wasn't a co- kind of coordinated, well, not even coordinated, a sort of particularly striking response to the neoliberal moment. And, and effect, effectively, what's happened is, you know, there's a there's an idol on the altar, and we were all bowing down and worshiping it. And there was a loud rumbling noise. The idol fell off the altar, and um, everyone gasped and looked astonished and appalled. And then we sort of shuffled our feet a bit and thought, well, okay, that's maybe we should just put the idol back on the altar and go back to worshiping it. And that's what we've done. Um, there hasn't been a change of model. The, all the default assumptions that were there in the thirty odd years that led up to the run up of the crash. It's as if 
oh well, what the hell, let's get the party started again. And um, it's a really surprising non-plot twist, you know, that it's actually everything's resumed on essentially the same basis. And I think there's a gigantic gap between the political order and what people feel. I think people feel incredibly baffled and angry and excluded. And I think we're starting to see that come through in sort of electoral results and, and things like that. And people just simply feel that they have been sort of shoved to the margins of their own lives by by these forces. But you, I mean, you predict, and it seems, it seems an entirely reasonable prediction to me, that economic questions will remain very much at the forefront of debate for the foreseeable future. And that equality is going to be a very, very important aspect of that debate. I do think that. I mean, I'd, in a way, I'd love, you know, I'd love for it all to go away um, as a subject. And I think the world would be a happier place if we weren't discussing economics. But I see no sign of that in the imminent future. And I think one of the reasons for that is um, I think it's a strange moment that you, if we're having this conversation in, in, you know, Beijing or Sydney or Rio de Janeiro or, or New York or Huddersfield, the topic of conversation is inequality. I've never known a moment like that where everybody is talking about the same thing everywhere at the same time. And it's a gigantic problem. As I said, you know, those cities aren't hypothetical examples. It's a gigantic problem in China, gigantic problem in Brazil, America, Europe, here, everywhere. And that's really strange that, that, that this that everyone we're all being pressed on in the same way and this thing about which really came from the neoliberal what we were talking about earlier the the rising gap between the rich and the poor and everybody in the middle and no obvious route out of it you know the neoliberal consensus doesn't offer a cure for that the cure is more of the same thing that made you ill in the first place. Because it's about, essentially, it's about losers and winners. It is about losers and winners. And the kind of basic deal is the idea that if you let the rich get rich, if you take away the rules and the speed limits, the rich will get rich faster than anyone else, but everyone else will get rich too. Rising tide lifts all boats. That's the favoured cliche. And it's manifestly not been true. I mean, you look at income distributions and the people in the middle are no better off than we were 30 years ago. And that's a problem that, in my view, that the existing set of arrangements can't solve, you know, that we need to readdress what we want from our social contract, from our society, that, you know, we work hard, pay our taxes, and what the state does in return is, we need a sort of different answer from that, from the one that just all takes away the rules and lets the rich get richer. You describe the city of London as a robber baron's castle. Yes. Uh, the, the metaphor I use there is a, you know, a, a thing that's sort of full of colour and light and glamour and, and wonder and amazement at the cost of the landscape around it. And so you don't, you don't buy the trickle down there, the jobs and the tax and the, the wider benefits? No, I think it would be disingenuous to say there's no trickle down because clearly, you know, that there's... A, you can't wander around modern London and say, you know, there's nobody spending money. But I think that the, what the economist says is a gloomy but useful idea called externalities. It's to do with the fact that I own a factory that produces fertiliser and make shed loads of money doing it and I'm doing very nicely, thanks. And the byproduct is the pollutants that go into the river and that kill off fish and 
contaminate the fields downstream. And I couldn't care less because I pay my taxes. My workers pay their taxes. I make fertiliser. Thanks. Pollutants, your problem. That's a classic externality in economics. It's something for someone else to deal with. And there are positive externalities too, by the way. They're not only negative. But I think there are really significant externalities to having this astonishing concentration of money and power and a huge gap between the richest and everyone else. I think that that sense of a kind of unclosable gap between finance and everyone else is is toxic. And I think that London becoming... I think it's also linked to the policies designed to have lots of super rich come to London. It's not just the city. Effectively, um, we're a tax haven for the super rich. I mean, openly regarded as such by tax planners internationally. That's not even a slightly controversial statement. That's why they come here, because they don't pay tax on their on their capital assets uh, through this non-domicile thing. And I think, you know, the externalities from, from the city and from the being a sort of super rich haven are really significant, not just for London, but for the UK more generally. And that the risk is of London gradually separating from the rest of the country and becoming this place where, you know, the rich people are, the politicians are, the media is, and where they don't know anything about life in the rest of the country. And it's a sort of crazed bubble of its own that has more in common with, you know, you're seeing it in the financial press that New York, London, Hong Kong, actually have more in common with each other than we do with the rest of the UK or the rest of Europe. And I think that that's a dangerous thing. Well, I read this week that to buy the average house in London, you would need to have £90,000 deposit and a salary of £100,000 to get the the, the sort of permissible multiple uh, on your salary as a mortgage. And I think, you know, and you see some, I mean, some of the data, I mean, in fact, this is out of date, it's a year ago now, so the numbers that we've got significantly worse. But remember... I think it's the Office of National Statistics that there's a Surrey a suburb called Edenbridge in Surrey, which is popular with Russians and city boys. The housing stock in Edenbridge is worth more than the housing stock in and, and frankly, I'd never heard of Edenbridge. No offence, anyone lives there before reading this thing in the paper. That's worth more than the housing stock in Glasgow. Wandsworth, not very far from which is a city of six hundred thousand people. Yeah, uh, and you know it's one of the biggest and most historically significant cities in the UK. Um, Wandsworth and this. At that point, you know, one's with not far from here. But again, lots of people work in the city there. Also Gordon Ramsay. And, you know, Wandsworth was worth then slightly less and now because the numbers have changed, was worth slightly more than Northern Ireland. Now, how can that fail to cause trouble? You know, really, how can that fail to be a source of division and discontent and a sense that, you know, them down, down there don't know what life is like here? Um... I, I really think that the, I know the thing about the Robert Barron's castle is strongly put, but I do think that this sense of everything being kind of sucked up and absorbed by London is um, is something that we, we have to get it out in the open and address it now before it re- before it starts to fester. John, I wanted to ask you in conclusion. You've written a book which is informative and at times amusing and empowering but if you look back 10 years to when you first got interested in in these questions are you a more pessimistic person about the economic outlook than you were then i don't know i'm not sure i thought about it much i mean i think i mean you know my dad as i say worked for a bank and i remember him once asking me when i was a student and um he didn't like to talk about money oddly enough have you got enough money which is a very odd question 
for him. It's the only time he ever asked me anything like that. And I said, um, I had a grant in those days, the magic days when the state paid for you to go to the university. And I was very surprised. I said, well, I don't know. I never really think about money. And he instantly, that was the thing, said, oh, that means you're rich. And I've often thought about that as an answer, as an exchange. Because actually, I think that's what being rich is. If you just never, the ideal state with money is to never think about it. So a decade ago, I basically never thought about it beyond, you know, can I pay the gas bill? I didn't have an optimistic or pessimistic view at a larger level, you know, because I'm not joking about not being the person you didn't know. I mean, it totally was. I think what I'd say now is that, you know, it's a strange picture of the world because there's been more material progress for the poor in the last 20 years than there ever has been in the history of the world before. You know, halved child mortality in the last 20 years. That's an astonishing achievement. It's more than anything that happened in the Industrial Revolution. And there are half as many people living what they call absolute poverty, which is $1.25 a day. And that's an amazing thing to have done. And at the same time, and obviously the rich have got dramatically richer and their their proportion of the income gains has increased more than ever. And at the same time, everyone else feels sort of defeated and baffled and in a corner. And I think that's the conundrum we have to fix. And by the way, and I do think we can fix it. I I don't think it's inaddressable. I do think there are solutions to inequality and to dividing the cake differently and to having the benefits of globalization and increased trade and technological advances without ruining the things that people value about the existing things. So I do think it's all fixable and manageable, but I don't think it will happen without people taking an active interest in it. I think we have to, people have to make their tools and pick up their tools. John Lanchester. His book, How to Speak Money, is out in September in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. And the complete audio archive is also available on SoundCloud. Search for SoundCloud Faber Books. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.